Father God, your people are gathered here. We are the ecclesia who have been called out. We have been called out from work. We have been called out from our busy schedule. We've been called out from the things that trouble us, that worry us, the, the things that keeps us away from you. But we have been called out to come spend three days here in the company of your people and more importantly, Lord, to hear from you. We want to thank you that you're a God who calls us up and, and to calls us to come up, come and to spend time with you. And so we have come. And as we stand here, Lord, in your presence, would you speak to us? Lord, I pray that they have not come to hear me, but they have come to hear you. It's your word that transforms. It's your spirit that gives encouragement and, and conviction of our sins. If there's any idols that we have been worshiping without knowing, reveal it to us and destroy those idols. If there's any love that we have apart from loving you, I pray, oh God, that we, you will turn us to, to, to face head on to, to see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. If there's any sin among us, Lord, or oh Father, we pray that you would forgive us. That may not, may the sins that we have so enjoyed doing, will, that it will keep us, that it will not keep us, oh Father, from hearing you. Oh, may the still voice of God get to our hearts. And may our hearts, Lord, be thrilled and overwhelmed and excited as we hear your word, your word, which, live, which is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. So, Father, we pray that you're glorified and your people are blessed. We thank you again, Lord, for the hope that we have that you are the one who does all things as you promised. And we pray this and ask this in the precious, matchless, mighty name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine that you're born in a country, a country which has got, uh, it's an ancient civilization. They've got their history going back to many millennia into BC. And this country has got a rich heritage. They've, they've had um, a lot of achievements. Uh, they, it's a country where gods and goddesses have, were born, and so there is pride, and the people there want to be like these gods and goddesses. And, uh, and so into this country, the gospel has come, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the church is not ordered, and there is trouble from outside, there's persecution from outside, and there is trouble on the inside. So I'm not sure which country you were thinking about, but I was trying to tell you about Crete, which is an island country at that time, and now part of Greece, uh, in the southernmost part, sorry, Southernmost part of Greece, this Crete is where we, we want to go. And as we were introduced, uh, we, we want to spend some time in the book of Titus. Okay, and, uh, and the idea is in this civilization, I don't know if you knew this, but Crete was where it was a cradle of the European civilization. Europe, the civilization of Europe actually began here. 
And in terms of religion, I'm not sure whether you knew this, but Zeus, which is considered to be the chief god of Greece, they thought was, was born in Crete. And so there was much that they were proud of. And the culture of the society matched that of Zeus. Now, Zeus was a man who was born in Crete, but through... Um, strategies and manipulation and through lies, he actually becomes God. And so the culture of Crete is that they want to do the same thing, whatever it takes, that they would be successful. And in fact, in Titus chapter 1, verse 12, it says there that, uh, that one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Oh, that's a very strong word, a prophet of their own saying this. In fact, Pliny, uh, I'm not sure whether you've heard of Pliny. Pliny was a scholar who had written about the ancient civilization. And he said that in Crete, there were no wild animals. So now on Epimenides, who was the prophet who wrote this, uh, we think it is him, he wrote it. He says that the Cretans are evil beasts. What he is trying to say is that they are making up for the evil beasts that are not there. That's the civilization that into which the gospel has come. Listen to what Barclay is saying. So notorious were the Cretans that a Greek had actually formed a verb, verb, critizen or criticed, which means to lie or to cheat. And why I'm saying all this, my dear brothers and sisters, it's in this country that the gospel came. And the gospel was beginning to change lives. So if we were to ask us, if we were to ask ourselves, will this gospel change us? Will this gospel change our country? Will this gospel stay, uh, change our state? I think that question is answered as we begin to look at this book. And so I think this is a precious book. We sometimes read through real quick and we don't understand. Um, in terms of, uh, I've got some um, I've got some um, uh, statistics from the U.S., uh, but it just gives you an idea for, of relevance. You know, if you look at the, um, the entertainment spectrum, right, if you take the movies, you take the sports, and you take music, those three, the top stars and the top movies, movie stars and athletes, if you put them together, they earned $40 billion dollars last year. Now, 40 billion is more than the GDP of 100 nations. This 40 billion came by people who, uh, common people like us, when we, you know, if you listen to music or watch movies or whatever it is, we are actually adding into their coffers. We actually DFI people. We make them stars. I don't know if you know about this, but uh, and there's a Grace Cathedral, Grace Cathedral in Los Angeles that runs a Beyonce Mass. You've, some of you have heard it, right? So there it goes. They play Beyonce music, and they take lessons from that as if to say that is the gospel. And the reason, so we are not too far from where the Cretans were. And I, I don't know most of you, so I'm not sure where you are at in this walk that God has called us to. But I'm hoping, I'm praying, this is my desperate prayer, that as we spend time 
looking at God's word uh, as it leads us through this, as he leads us through this episode, that he will speak to us, he will transform us, that these three days would be a time of good um, introspection, a time of good uh, aha moments, uh, some things that you've learned, you probably looked at this book, you've re- read this book, there may be certain things that you didn't, uh, it didn't strike you, but I'm praying that God will grab your attention and that you will say he is worthy of praise and of our life itself. And so the title, uh, as the theme verse, is chapter 2, verse 11. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. I'm going to read the theme verse, but then we'll go back to the beginning of Titus later. So Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to read verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for, God, for good works. You see, this living with hope in anticipation of his coming. What I want to show to you is that hope has got feet. The hope must stand on feet and we want to begin to see what is this feet that hope rests on based on which we can make our living. And so, so what, 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 uh, um, uh, what we will see as you go through is that uh, Paul is actually going through four things, godly, godship, leadership, um, discipleship, and lordship. But today, what we want to do, just as the Bible begins, we want to begin with godship. So will you turn now to Titus chapter 1, I want to read from verse 1 to verse 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Uh, may God bless the reading of his verse. I'm gonna, we're going to look at this and we will see how the preciousness of hope resides on God. We cannot begin. We cannot have hope without God. It must begin with God. Bible is a, is a, a book of hope. I'm not sure. If I were to ask you this question, if you were to see the first instance of hope, how far back into the Bible would you go? Where do you see hope? Genesis, okay, where? Three? I want you to turn to Genesis 3 because... You know, I'm not sure whether you caught this. This is the beauty of, of Genesis 3. And one of my favorite chapters, you see, um, 
Adam and Eve, they were told to have dominion over the world. They were, they were to multiply and to, uh, to, uh, to be fruitful. They were to have dominion over the bees. But Genesis 3 begins with bees trying to have dominion over Eve, and Eve is not going to influence Adam. So there is this reversal. When it starts to say uh, uh, the serpent was the most subtle we got to be careful because Adam was supposed to have dominion over the beast. His subtlety should not have been played out. He should have actually been destroyed in some sense. What is he doing in the Garden of Eden? So he fails. And then you come to, uh, to Eve. Uh, what God had said is not good. She begins to look at the fruit and say, it is good. So there is a problem. And so let's not put all the blame on the devil. Don't ever say the devil made me do it. Okay, so that is not what I'm leading you to, but that's good to remember. So, verse 15. <laughs> verse 15. What's happened till now? The presence of God has become a presence of judgment. It was never there before, but sin has entered. It's become a presence of judgment. The ground is cursed. The serpent is cursed. Adam and Eve are waiting for the curse to fall on them because they, was, they were told before, on the day that you would eat, you will surely die. Death had come, but the death was delayed. Because when you read verse 15, I'm not sure whether you noticed this, death is not falling on them. Death is falling on the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, as we will know later. That is the first instance of the gospel. Death falling on someone else, not on them. But true, they die, uh, they have a physical death, but they have an opportunity to redeem themselves through the seed of the woman, and we see that in verse 20. In the, in the presence of all of this, in verse 20 we read, the man called his wife, wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. You know, when it should have been death, Adam has this hope that Eve is now going to be the mother of all living. That is hope. I don't know what Adam used to call Eve before, maybe the forbidden fruit, right? I don't know, really. <laughs> I, I'm going to ask him when we meet him, but now, she's been called Eve, the mother of all living. That, I think, is just the glorious hope. It's just the beauty of what God is saying. The Spirit of God is telling us through this passage. That death, which should have killed them instantly, has now passed on to the seed of the woman because he is the serpent crusher. The head of the serpent. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, as you go down the, the uh, narrative in Genesis, we see that they want to be buried in the promised land, the land that was never theirs yet. It wasn't there yet. But they wanted to be buried in the promised land. Joseph, in, in Genesis 50, we read that he had told them that when you leave, take my bones, I want to be buried in the promised land. So what was their hope? Was their hope the land, the promised land? Why, would, why did they want to be buried in the promised land? 
Let's go to the Psalms. Psalms 27, verse 13. If someone's got that before me, please turn. It's like a sword drill, right? So Psalm 27, verse 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, David is already in the land, but he says that he will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, not the physical land. If you turn to Psalm 23, we see there a table that you have set before my enemies. Now, that's a festal feast. That is after the enemies have been destroyed or vanquished or whatever, the, the victorious army would sit down and eat. And that's the picture that you get there. And then after that, there is this uh, experience of the walking through the valley of the shadow of death and goes on to say to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So what was the hope of the patriarchs? Why did they want to be buried in the promised land? If it's not clear, turn to Psalm 46. See what happens there, Psalm 46. Psalm 46. Psalm 46, verse 6 says, the nations are raging. Remember Psalm 2? That's the same theme that is happening there. And Psalm 10 says, be still and know that he is God. Why can he be still? Because verse 4 says there, he... um, Uh, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Now, this is not Jerusalem because there's no river in Jerusalem. This is the new Jerusalem where the river flows out from the throne of God. And so the hope of the patriarchs is not the promised land. It's the hope of the resurrection. You see, when you get to Hebrews 11, they, their eyes were fixed on a city whose builder and author was God himself. Their hope and our hope after so many centuries is the resurrection. And that's the hope that we have. That's the hope, the glorious hope we want to talk about. And so this hope is not, not just willy-nilly. This is not hope as the world would give. But this hope is based on the assurance the hope of eternal life. So come back to Titus chapter 1. What we want to do is we want to go through the reasons why we can have this hope from the passage that we have. So Titus chapter 1, we read from verses 1 to 4. I want to give you three aspects of this biblical hope. First is that the hope is anchored in God's character, not on personal achievement, not like Zeus. You know, he tried everything, and and he eventually became God. Not that, but it's going to be on the character of God. Bernard Barak, who was a a statesman, he was also a counselor for Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, He used to tell the story. He told a story about this man who had fallen fall with the king, and the king wanted to put him to death. So this man got into a negotiating term with a king, saying that, King, if you give me one year, I'll make your horse fly. I'll teach your horse how to fly. I was like, the king says, yeah, cool. I'll give you one year. And then later his friends came in and says, like, what are you doing? What are you saying? How are you going to teach the horse to fly? So then this man says, you know what? In one year, a lot of things can happen. The king can die. I can die. The horse can die. 
or maybe the horse might fly. That's not the hope. It's not based on time. It's not based on just an expectation that we create of ourselves. This hope is built on the character of God, which says for, for a servant of God, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and of our knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and the hope of eternal life, or a God who does not lie. It's anchored. Verse 2 says it's anchored on an unliable God. When people in Crete would read this, they know it's contrasting against who? Zeus, because he was a God who, be, who was a man who they thought had become God through lies. This is, an, is a God who does not lie. Now, this is the beauty of verse 2. In hope of eternal life, <clears throat> which God who never lies promised before when? When did he promise? Before the ages began. Now, you tell me, were you there when God promised? Who did he promise to? You got to pause and ask the question. He promised. Who's, who's hearing him? Who's hearing him? Who is he making this promise before creation even began? To himself. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read about this phrase, the counsel of his will. Within his counsel, he makes this promise. That's the God. A God who does not lie, who makes a promise and who keeps his promise at the cost of his son. That's the God I want to bring you, bring your attention to. When God makes a promise. You, you got to ask this question too, right? Like, why does God make promise? Like, why promise? Uh, how, how many parents out here? Right. So do you promise your, chi- promise your child something for the birthday? Right. Why do you promise? Why do you not just wait on the birthday and just give the child? We promise, right? God is not promising. Why does God promise and not just do it? Because I think it builds in us character. It builds in us this hope that we are talking about. It builds in us this expectation, this expectancy, that we can lean and trust on this God. It helps us Uh, learn trusting this person who speaks and says, now as parents, you know, we want to shut up here, kids up, and say, I'll buy you ice cream and never buy them ice cream. Now I've been promised 50 times and never got those ice creams, right? Uh, We're probably putting a template where uh, we are destroying hope and expectation or expectancy or this keeping of the promise. But God, a God who does not lie, promised before the ages began. That's the God. That's the character on which our hope resides, right? But not just that. I want you to see that it is anchored on the proclamation of God's word. Verse 3. And at the proper time, manifested, say church, in his... I want you to read what is there in your Bible and tell me what it is. At the proper time, manifested in his... Word. I want you to understand this. It is manifested in his word. That's the reason why I love CBF, because you guys come back to the word. It is not the word of the speaker or the preacher. Whoever comes, you've got to check to see whether it is from the word. 
And so it was proclaimed and manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of our God. Now the word there, proclamation, proclaimed, uh, or preaching, or the word kerygma. Kerygma is the word that will constantly come up. Now the idea is this, that the king has an announcement to make and the horses, the heralds would go out and they go to the public square and stand there and say, hear ye, hear ye. And at that moment, every work ceases. No person speaks because the king is about to speak or through the herald. That's his word. That is what preaching is. That's the proclamation. The power of preaching is that it is God. It's God's word. And so we, in reverence, keep silent, not our word. So that's the proclamation that is happening. Proclamation, because when God's word is proclaimed, it contrasts Zeus with Christ. Zeus is a man who tried to become God. That is what Genesis 3 is all about. The first Adam, he wanted to be, he was a man who tried to usurp just like what the devil, the serpent did to become like God. But here we want to talk about Christ, who was God, who became church, who? Who did he become? Who did Christ become? Are you listening? Am I talking? Do you understand? Who did Jesus become? Man. I, 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 this, this, this contraindicated gospel. This is not just the gospel that you hear. Uh, one other thing, I've got to say this. Sometimes you get this WhatsApp messages of good motivational quips. I think that's destroying our theology. That is not what this is all about. You see, because what we are talking about here is that, that Christ and his, who he is of, of man, of God becoming man, of Cretans and Christians being different. That is what proclamation comes out. So it is not motivation pulling up by the bootstraps, as it were, to become somebody and to be successful. But this gospel says of a God who, who came down as man, who lowered himself, who became obedient to death. That's the call of the gospel. That's the proclamation that happens. Not sometimes what we get on our WhatsApp messages. Because uh, when the proclamation is made, that's the time when our functional theology becomes real. If I ask you and say, do you believe that God has got you, that he will care for you, his promises will be true for you, that you can trust him, and how many hands will go up? No hands? No hands? I, I want to see all hands go up if you believe this. Otherwise, I'm just speaking to a crowd that I love to, you know, change my message. If you believe this, this is great. But my question to you is, how does it become functional? When you're in the midst of your stress, when you're in trouble, when you are faced and confronted with some challenging situation, do you act on the theology that you have confessed, or do you have another kind of theology on which you act? Then you're no different from the Cretans. Then you're no different from Genesis 3. Then you're no different from Zeus. 
because we are trying to do things on our own. And so functional theology becomes important. I was just sharing with uh, Brother Raven um, <clears throat> about, uh, you know, it's during funerals that are, and when eulogies are said, that this real functional, and when I say functional is, you know, there's a confessional belief and there's a thing that we act on. That's what a functional belief is. When eulogies are said, what we really rest our hope on comes up. And, and they would say things about this person who died and says, oh, he was an upright man. He was, you know, he lived a sinless life. And you would have to think, who is the one? That, that's not, that's not man. You see, we want to say things that are not true, and we cannot. Oh, we cannot. So it's during the proclamation of God's word, you're confronted with these, uh, you know, these belief systems, these worldviews that you hold on to that gets revealed. That's why it's, it says, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted, by the command of God, our Savior. What does it reveal? It reveals true faith and true knowledge. That's verse 1. You see, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth. Now, what's interesting is this word knowledge, the Latin word from which uh, this word comes, or even if you look up, is the word science. Science actually is, uh, the Latin word is scientia, which is actually where you get the word science and the word knowledge. And so really, faith and knowledge come together. Many times you go into this world and they will say, you know, if you are a man of faith, you can't be a man of science. But the Bible is saying faith and science come together. Uh, And so uh, it says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So when you have Right knowledge and true faith, it leads to godliness. Now, what is godliness? What does that mean, godliness? Say it again. Say it. What's godliness? Godly living? Is that what that is? What does that mean? What does godly living mean? What does godly living mean? Christ-likeness? Yeah, I like that, Christ-likeness. So I'm going to get on that, okay? Just before that. Very quickly, your belief and your behavior must match. Your belief in God's word, what God's word is saying, and the way you act it out, that is a good way of looking at godliness. Christ-likeness. Now, when you say we'll become like Christ, will we become Christ? When we say godliness, do we become gods? No. So then what's the difference? Easy way to remember is that there is this communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God. There are these attributes of God that we can never be. That is omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. Okay, I forgot what I said the first one, but thank you there. But those we'll never have. But you know what we do? We try to get control. We want to know everything. We want to be Mr. Google and Mrs. Google and Ms. Google maybe. But, you know, we want to be, we want to know everything. We want to be in control. This is what we try for. But God is saying there are attributes of me that I want you to be. I want you to be holy. I want you to be whole and loving. I want you to be um, pure and separate. And so we will be, when we 
when we present it spotless and blemishless, the idea is this. And that was what Adam and Eve would have become as they waited on God's word, as they trusted in God's word, where they trusted the serpent's word. So we get an opportunity today. And one other thing, as we go through Titus, we will see that godliness is also selfless acts towards others. Because if we are godlike in the sense of these communicable attributes, then we must be exactly what God did. He was about others. Okay? Because what did um, uh, the uh, Cretans and the... Um, and the Christians in Crete had rationalized, is saying that we are not in the law under law anymore. We are not under, you know, uh, rules and restrictions. So we can do what we want. Uh, but yet, that was not true. They wanted, they wanted to do, as the saying goes, uh, when, when in Rome, be as the, what the Romans do. And that cannot work. That is the contrary. That cannot work with this contrary gospel that we've been called to. All right. So, so then godliness, as we read in verse 1. Um, uh, I'm going to read from the latter part. Which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. Which really is... Right at the beginning, what Paul is beginning to do is that he is saying that this godliness that you're going to live out is the evidence is the is the evidence of the hope that you have. Do you hope in the coming of the Lord? Do you hope that the Lord will come soon? And if you have that hope, then the evidence is godliness. With that, he starts to frame his whole episode. Okay, but I want to tell you the third reason why we can have this hope. Because it's anchored on the assured work of Christ. And this verse 4, the latter part, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Uh, this is one of the common greetings that Paul gives, grace and peace. Why does he do grace and peace? What do you think? Why, what's grace and peace? What's it trying to communicate? Grace for the... Grace is the word that they would use among the Gentiles. Peace would be shalom among the Jews. So there is an idea that grace and peace, so he is greeting everybody. Okay, that's true. But there's a greater beauty of the truth at this place because he always puts grace before peace. Without grace, there would be no peace. There's no peace with God if the grace of God had not appeared. Chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and a life of godliness. Grace before peace. And therefore, at the birth of Jesus, the angels would proclaim peace on earth and goodwill toward man because grace has appeared. Grace has come incarnate. And so, 
we read in chapter 2, verse 11. Right? So, so you got that we can, this hope is based on God. And without God, there's no hope. And that it becomes clear to us through his word. And that we see that this, there is a sequence of grace and peace that we have experienced. So how do we apply it to ourselves? How do you make that real for us? I want us to look at the first one is like begin with God. I think you've got notes with you. Is that, am I right in saying that or no? Okay. That's all right. You can watch the screen. We begin with God. You cannot have hope apart from God. I want us to want us want this to be the anchor thought. That if you ever have a hope, not a functional hope, but a godly hope, a biblical hope, a assured hope that it's based on God's character, that I have learned and studied from his word, a God who does not lie, makes a promise and delivers on it to even at the cost of the death of his son. That God who brought peace between me and him, we have peace with God, we read in Romans 5. We got to begin with God. And what, what happens when you begin with God is that it's like the pebble that you drop in the water. There are these ripple effects that you have. We said it leads us to the knowledge. It leads us to the faith, the true faith. It leads us to the knowledge of truth. It leads us to godliness and godliness, which is the evidence of hope. And this is what he says right at the beginning. And so and uh, I also want you to turn to 1 John. Okay, let's, that's a beautiful verse. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 3. Sorry, it's, yeah, 1 John 3, verses 1 to 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God as we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him. Beloved, we are, the God's, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that, we know that, we know that, that when he appears, again, going back to Titus chapter 2, verse 11, when he appears, uh, verse 13, this would be, uh, verse 11 we just saw, verse 13 is this appearance, we'll be like him because we will see him as he is. And verse 3, and everyone who has this hope in him, church, what did they do? He purifies himself. He has this godliness. If you have hope, if you say you have hope that Jesus is coming again, the only evidence that you have this hope, not through confession that you have a hope, but the belief that you have this hope, it must be evidenced in what? Godliness. In godliness. Okay, there is, I want to read this. I don't think I put it up there. Oh, I did. Okay. Revenge. A lot of people say, I don't want to take revenge. You hear them saying, but revenge is destructive. It insists, uh, it insists that it is killing the enemy, but it kills you instead. Flesh is deceptive. It loves it in you, but hates it in others. You like the things that flesh, you know, you enjoy the flesh, but when you see it in someone else, you don't like it. 
But false hope is dangerous. It makes you hope in hope. It tethers the end of the rope to itself. Any hope without it being anchored in God is no hope at all. And how is this hope sustained? As we saw, it is sustained through the word. And so be drawn to the word for the spirit to kindle this hope as we read through the pages of God's word. And if you don't read God's word, if you don't spend time praying, and I understand Bangalore is a busy, busy life and busy time. You hardly have time and you say, how do I make time for God's word and for prayer? Yes, there is a time for word and for prayer that you have to carve out. And yet there is also a time where your constant communication and your being is in communication with God in his word and through prayer. Because the problem is this, and I hear this often. People would say things about God, about Jesus, and about the Bible, and it's got no bearing on what God's word is saying. You see, they take stands on certain issues, which is not what God's word is saying, because they've never read God's word. And I challenge them to say that when you speak things about God without reading about him and his word, you are actually speaking about another God. You're not speaking about the God of the Bible, because you haven't read that Bible. You haven't spent time reading the Bible. You haven't spent time praying to the God of the Bible. How then can I ever assume I know who he is and what he is saying? So reading God's word and praying is not a matter of, why. Well, you know what, I need to satisfy God. I get some brownie points, maybe get an extra crown, miss an extra gold in my crown. I don't know what the, the theology is, but you cannot live a godly life, the evidence of hope without God's word. And so once we realize that, that this is no more a matter of just, okay, this is an expected thing, but this is like the air. Nobody ever has complained, I don't have time to breathe. But I know that is that sounds very guilt-provoking, but that's not intended to. It is to say that if, if we need to know who the God of the word, we have to go to the word. I don't know how that phrase is, but you know what I'm trying to say. The God of the word, you have to go to the word of God. I remember just a couple months ago, I was really, really down. I... I you know, I felt like it was the end of the road. It wasn't nothing personal. It was something about the church. And and uh, one of the burdens that we bear as elders is constantly thinking about the welfare of the sheep. And and uh, and I I was just like, Lord, I can't do this. I, I just, I can't. And I, I can't remember how I got to this reading, but I want you to turn with me to Psalm 43 and verse 5. And I've got multiple um, examples of how God speaks to us in our deepest moment. Not because we've gone there 
only when we are in need, but we have gone there before we had the need. And so the Spirit of God reminds us of what he has taught us. And so when I was in Psalm 43 in verse 5, it felt like God saying this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? This is the psalmist saying to himself. But then he goes on to say, Why are you in turmoil within me? Why are you so restless within me, my soul? Church, what does it go, go on to say? What am I supposed to do? Hope in God. And I will again praise him. My salvation and my God. Hope in God. A God who does not lie. A God who fulfills his promise. A God who does not need to make promise, but he does. So that we can wait with expectation of the fulfillment. Perseverance, therefore, is continuing to do what is right, even when there is no evidence it's making a difference. It is pushing against the strong wind of discouragement, a steely commitment to the finish. That is what I was able to write back to this person who I was struggling with and for. Perseverance is continuing to do what is right, even when there is no evidence it's making a difference. It's pushing through the strong wind of discouragement, a steely commitment to the finish. And so we can do that because we have a hope, a God who does not lie. I want us to take some time uh, discussing some questions I'm going to put up on the screen. So if you want to turn around or group together, um, uh, timekeeper there, how much time do we have? 15 minutes, thank you. So we've got 15 minutes. So you get t 10 minutes and we'll have a, uh, our timekeeper will shout out 10 minutes and at that time take five minutes to pray in your group. So you can have a group of four or five or three or whatever it is. But I want us to discuss these two questions. What are the pitfalls of faith and knowledge that are not according to the truth of God's word? Give real life examples. We have Faith and knowledge that we have held on to, the, the functional beliefs. What are some examples that, you know, yeah, I re realize that that's not what God is saying, but this is what I've held on to. Give some real-life examples. And list practical but personally relevant ways of sustaining godly hope while living amid our Zeus-dominated worldview, use different settings, workplace, society, church, family. So really, how can I live this godly life of godliness, which is the evidence of hope? At work, at home, I don't know how many homemakers are here. They might be thinking they're well-studied and, and all of that. And sometimes there is this... this Guilt that is laid upon you that you're not doing enough, you're not contributing to the economy of the family, I don't know what it is, but making an eternal impact on your child is, is well past this few years of work, uh, but it can bring you down. But look at examples listed down. It's just too simple, very simple, not too much. And I'll walk around. If you've got any questions, you can ask me for clarification. But let's just take time. We've got about 10 minutes to discuss and 5 minutes to pray within your group.
Please go ahead. Only 10 minutes are left. Okay, I spoke another five. Okay, before we go, okay, five. You got five minutes to discuss. So we'll, we'll stop at two and a half minutes for the second question. Can I, before you, I, I'm thinking that everybody's finished praying. The time that you had was not enough to discuss, maybe, and you still have a cloud hanging around your head as to what all this was all about. Um, some of the phrases were like, uh, make it, uh, fake it till you make it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps or, you know, just hang in there. And how does all of this reflect in light of God's word? Now, I was just having a conversation with a brother. He didn't introduce himself. So I don't know who he is. But, but the thing is, are they successful? Are they doing well in their lives by doing what they did, by believing in themselves and acting on whatever they believed and they become successful? I would say yes, but that's the way of the zoos. That's what Zeus did. He acted and he was successful. But the definition of success is contraindicated in the Bible. The way Bible defines success is not the same way the world defines success. And we will, this is just hopefully stirring you to ask this question. I don't know what's this all about. Obviously, this is just the first session. There will be some more to come, which we hope to build on. But let these thoughts play in your head. All right? God bless. Over to the team.